Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, I am delighted to welcome to the SASPod Rabia Saeed, currently a Stegner Fellow in Fiction at Stanford University. She was a finalist for the Editor's Prize in Prose for Meridian, the winner of the 2020 Harvey Swados Fiction Prize, as well as the 2021 James W. Foley Award. Until recently, she taught creative writing at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Rabia, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's such a privilege to be here and thank you for having me on. The privilege is all ours. Um, can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Who is Rabia Saeed? That is such an existential question. I was <laughs> wondering <laughs> right before the po podcast, I was like, who am I? I think uh, the hardest thing to do is to um, kind of have perspective on yourself for everyone. Um, but I guess we can start with the facts. Um, I grew up uh, in this uh, town called Kohat uh, in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, which is on the Pak-Afghan border. Um, it's a very small and conservative town. Um, and so I think uh, that defined a lot of my upbringing. Um, and then again, I'm a, a Pashtun as well. Um, and that's a big part of um, what I'm kind of like trying to understand um, about myself and in my writing, because there's very little writing about Pashtun-ness and then especially about Pashtun women. Um, as we spoke previously, we were talking about it like, I, I'm sure there are uh, Pashtun women who are writing fiction, but I don't really know of them. So if you're out there, let me know. <laughs> um, but you know, um, so it, you know, so that's, um, so growing up there, I was there until I was 16. Uh, and then I went to Islamabad for two years to do my A-levels uh, because I didn't have, um, there were no A-levels or the last two years of high school um in uh, Kohat so I went to Islamabad the capital um and then uh I went to Lahore for university um yeah and then I came to the U.S. for uh my master's in fiction writing and now I'm here uh, as a Stegner fellow so that's sort of to give you uh, a very quick overview yes exactly so it's a, it's a, it's ironic that that's how I'm answering the question of who am I I feel like there's so much to unpack there but there is and we will and I'd like to start off you you uh, describe a, a Kohat as a small conservative town and mm. and then you also uh, say that you are um you're invested in your identity as a Pashtun. So um, I'm not I'm not collapsing those two statements, but uh, can you say more about both of those? And then we'll take it from there. No, that's a very good question. Um, it's interesting because I feel like um, 
Arriving in the US in the time of Trump, identity was such a, a big question here. Mm -hmm. And I feel like especially among writing circles, there's such a, um, there's so much talk of identity. And so it's actually very counterintuitive for me to understand myself in those terms. Mm -hmm. um, or I, I wonder about the politics of like forefronting identity in that way. Mm -hmm. um, but with that caveat, um you know i think there's a when you grew up in a place like that for instance uh where there's of course like um i can't really leave the house unless it's for school uh, or i have to for instance cover my face uh, when i go to the bazaar or any of those things that are otherwise considered stereotypical of a certain culture those right. were in fact the facts of life yeah. and i think as a writer i have to contend with that all the time that this is something that looks like a stereotype and yet it was reality mm -hmm. um so i think identity becomes inseparable in that way because those patriarchal structures define my life define the structure of my life um and um it's not something that i sit here in the us and think oh this what is my culture you know like my culture has this thing or that's not what i'm doing it's true it truly begins to it shapes your life and then everything you do has to be in negotiation with how you've been socialized and because the reality around you my cousins my friends my relatives they are upholding that reality as i live now right so it's something that you can never uh, separate yourself from and then the other thing with Pashtun identity is that you know like I told you before like it's a um, it's not the majority in Pakistan it's the Pashtun uh, Pashtuns are a majority in Afghanistan um, so it's very interesting because we're growing along uh, I grew up along the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan and um, you know, as, like I said before, like the partition, for instance, is not a part of my imaginary at all. I did not care about the partition. I uh, I still don't care about it. It it felt very irrelevant to us. Um, nobody around me talked about it. But the but the Afghan war uh, and the war on terror had a big impact on us. If I mean, you know, if we escaped its um, physical consequences, it was a big part of our imagination at that time. So I think that's why given the time that I grew up there, given the fact that I was, I am a woman, and given that Pashtun identity is a masculine identity, which, um, you know, if you ask anyone in Pakistan, what are Pashtuns like? They will say, oh, they are an honorable people. They are warrior-like. They are off the mountains. They are tribal. Um, they are bold and brave. Um, and so all of these qualities are actually masculine qualities. So if you are a thinking woman who's reading books, you begin to ask yourself, what does it mean to be a woman who is also a Pashtun, right? Because the only stereotype for women is like, oh, they, they cover their faces and they're beautiful. That's that's the stereotype. But if your identity comes from your mind and you're a Pashtun woman in that place, you develop a very strange relationship between your body and your cerebral um mind and so you begin they the begin to separate in a certain way yeah which is again a rife place for a writer to be or a writer to be born into um and I, I hearing you speak i i know that it's i don't want to fall into more stereotypes like 
um, wow, you must have struggled or you are brave, this Pashtun identity that you describe as masculine. I mean, the women must also have enormous bravery. And yet one can't help but feel like, okay, that's not, that's not what we would expect of someone who's now in a writing fellowship in the United States to, that's not a stereotypical background, I guess. And so I wonder how that plays, how, how that plays into your identity, whether you, whether you find that, diff I don't want to use the word offensive, but let's go with it for now. When people approach you in that way, like, like in your other fellows, there might be people that um, in your cohort that, that might come from backgrounds that are more um, naturally leading to this place in the current time and yours not so much. And I wonder how that, how that fits into your identity. And if you rebel against that, um, or whether you accept that that's a fair assessment. Oh, that's that's really interesting. I mean, the first thing I would say is that I have I don't have a lot of discomfort being an outsider because, um, like I said, I, I'm from a small town. So when I went to Islamabad, everybody was like, oh, where is Kohart? What is Kohart? Ooh, you are Pashtun. And there was this kind of exoticization that happened in the capital. Then when I went to Lahore for college, the same thing happened. In fact, people would refer to me as this like wild girl from <laughs> with long flowing hair, you know, and she's very like Pashtun and like, you know, she probably gets angry really quickly or something like that. And wow. so that kind of exoticization has happened within Pakistan. And so when I come here, people are actually much more polite and afraid. <laughs> and I, and I, you know, and it's, it's interesting. And the other thing is that, so again, I'm very comfortable being in the periphery. Um, I, I, uh, I, I agree with everyone. I was like, I'm not like you. It is true, you know, and I would want to keep it that way. Um, and the other thing is that, um, you know, one thing I've been noticing about American culture is that people assume that uh, I'm immigrating to the U.S. Mm. You know, or that uh, I, I too am American or something like that, which I find really funny. I'm like, no, I am visiting and observing you guys and I'm here to write and then I'm going to go back, you know. And so it kind of feels like a reverse colonialism almost where like there's some it's an interesting position to have. Mm -hmm. uh, where you're like, I'm not committing to anything here. I'm here to uh, visit and observe. Um, so yeah. That, I love I that. that. You're here to get material. That's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I like that. Um, now, you mentioned that you went from Kohat to um, Islamabad to do your A-levels. Um, tell us a little bit more, because I imagine you didn't just get yourself on a bus and and off you went. I imagine that there was a little bit more oh, I honestly, organizing I think, around that. I think it's the most unbelievable thing uh, that happened to me, um, because, again, like I have a conservative family um, and we were these five girls in my school, uh, in my class, and we were all like very hardworking and uh, we, we read a lot and we studied a lot and we got good grades. So when we reached 10th grade and there was no further education for uh, A-levels, um, one of my friends had an aunt and she never got married and she had made education her life's purpose. She was like, all my nieces and nephews, I will study with them and I will make sure that they reach the heights of success. So anyway, she came forward and she said, listen, these girls have so much potential and they're so smart and they're going to do well uh, if you guys entrust me with them, because I can't afford to move with my niece alone. But if all five of us rent a floor uh, in Islamabad, then I will be their guardian and I will make sure that they don't do anything and they'll study. 
And so in this very unusual way, all five of us girls who had grown up together, we moved to Islamabad, we lived near our school and we lived together. Um, and uh, this aunt took care of us. And I think I, I also got a scholarship for my A-level education. So I think that also made it easier for my parents to let go of us. But it, but again, like, because we're from a small town, every we knew their family our whole lives. So I think that also led to that kind of trusting. But I don't think even my mother can still believe that that happened. Um, so the power was, of the auntie, it's, that's going to be the <laughs> name of this podcast. I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> it's a really incredible story and and just two things for our audience so a levels just to clarify because you and i are chatting like everybody knows the british education system so that's the final two years of high school it's 11th and, and 12th grade so it's what, yeah. what sets you up for university um and so you're saying that wasn't even available in kohad which suggests no. that you know, for girls or for anyone for anyone we had the traditional um uh, system uh, the board system uh, but Ours was the only school that provided this kind of like British education in Kohat. So this was, we had O-levels. It was the only school with O-levels, but then there was no A-levels. Got it, got it. And then um, just to kind of set the scene a little bit more about this amazing journey, how far is Islamabad from Kohat? Uh, I would say now because of the motorway, it's like four or five hours. Okay. Or maybe, yeah, five hours, I think. But again, pa Pakistan is a very small country. So, okay. Um, yeah. Okay, great. That sets the scene for us. Um, and then you went to Lums, I believe. Yes. Okay, how did that happen? Um, well, I, you know, we, I had heard growing up that this, this, there's this liberal arts college and it's like, there's a lot of freedom there and there's all this, like, you can have a real university experience, all of that. Um, but, you know, I, I just applied, uh, it was the only school I applied to, and that was a huge risk. Um, and, you know, all of us were applying to it. Um, and then at that time, somehow, like my, actually, I, I hadn't studied properly. So I, on the day of the test, it's like an SAT test. Uh -huh. um, I was like, I'm not going. And my friend dragged me out of bed and said, you're going because the taxi's outside, we're sitting, you're coming with us. And we gave the test. Um, and then by some weird chance, I got in and the, all the other girls with me didn't. Um, and it was this, yeah, it was. Yeah. It must have been tricky for a little bit. I mean, they're all very generous and sweet. And then also, I think not everyone was applying. Some of them wanted to be doctors and stuff. So they applied to other things. Right. Uh, it worked out. The girl who had dragged me out of bed actually transferred a year later. Okay. to uh, to lums and so it, it worked out but at yes. that time it felt like the beginning of destiny <laughs> and did you go and study writing was that already what you wanted to do no I had I had no idea that um writing was an option I had no idea that um you could be a writer I chose economics um I considered doing an English degree but I thought well they, my my uh, family resisted it and also, I just, I was like, what what would the job be? Like, I just don't understand. Um, so anyway, I did econ and I was terrible at it. And that was very confronting because I'd been a very straight A student my whole life. Mm. And so um, I was going through this thing in university where I was like, I thought I was smart and I thought I was really, you know, and then you're surrounded for the first time by the cream of the country, like the intellectual cream and most, it's an elite university. 
And I was like, these people have everything. They're smart. They have all these other things. And so it was at least for three years, I was very lost um, because I couldn't grasp at, I wasn't smart anymore. Yeah, I I uh, I relate to that. Um, I think it's hard when you are always the smartest in your high school and then you get to a university where smartness is kind of baseline. Mm. Although smartness, of course, can be defined in so many different ways, which gets me thinking about affirmative action. And let's not go there um, at <laughs> a particular point in time um, because smart is def defined a certain way by a certain demographic. Um, but I'd always been really good at studying languages. I studied loads of languages and I did Latin and Greek in high school and I loved it. Um, mm -hmm. And I was always really good at them. And then I decided to study Sanskrit. Uh, and wow. that was the absolute confrontation with the fact that I wasn't smart at all as it turned out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean Sanskrit was the wall um so I can relate to your feeling um so did you what happened from econ um to writing what, what what's the bridge oh it was I think again one of those um moments that I just cannot come to terms with um because uh so yeah I was studying economics I was really bad at it no matter what I did I just couldn't do it well but that didn't make me want to change my mind or anything. But one day a friend of mine uh, said that she wanted to take this class that was being taught by a writer. And first, just the very fact that a writer was on campus felt extraordinary. I'd never heard it. I, I had no idea that this was something that was being offered. Mm -hmm. Even then I wasn't very interested, uh, but my friend was like, I don't want to take this class alone. I have to take it and you have to take it with me. So as a favor to her, I was like, fine, I'll do this. I took the class and um, yeah, I was taught by a writer. And up until that point, I had thought that all the feelings and emotions I have are just feelings, right? Um, but then he would ask a question and I would tell him how I felt about it. And he would be like, brilliant, brilliant. And suddenly I realized that all, whatever, all these feelings are a kind of intelligence or or a sensibility which is useful it's not just something to because i you know after my classes i would uh, just talk to my friends like what is life and what is existence and what is all this and how are we all acting like this is all normal like this is clearly a facade like what are we doing and suddenly all of those things became relevant mm. um and it was it was just i think it was being recognized combined with knowing that this big part of me is a real thing that one can do something with mm -hmm. these two came together and then my professor Bilal Tanvir who has literally single-handedly developed a literary community in Pakistan he just sort of like was like you I read your story what are we going to do about this why are you studying econ you should apply to MFA programs um and so in my senior year I just took that class and uh, applied for MFAs. You said you um, you were top of your class back in Kohat and, and you and the other um, young women that also went to Islamabad, you, you read a lot. Yes. And so at no point did reading a lot translate into an understanding that that was a job and were there no, no quote-unquote role models for you why had that not why had you not realized that that was a thing that women like you could do 
I just, I had no idea anyone could be a writer. I just thought all these, you know, all these things belong to a different realm. Like mm -hmm. even uh, when I would watch TV, I, when I came to Lahore, I felt like I had arrived in Pakistan. Mm. I've, wow, and that's a statement. When I, when I, it's like you have a reality around you and then you watch TV or you read books. Um, and and it was so, I, I thought life was happening elsewhere. And I thought the world was elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I could not, you know what I mean? I just never connected. And then I thought you couldn't be a writer if you're from Pakistan. Like it was just, I just didn't know it was something you could do. And I didn't even know what an MFA was. And that's normal. That's actually even people in the US sometimes don't know what sure. an MFA is. So I, when I took that class, I was like, how did he become a writer? And I realized he did an MFA. And I was like, what is an MFA? And that whole thing happened. Um, but um, yeah, but I was training for that job my whole life. And I didn't, I didn't know. It's, it's phenomenal. And it's, um, yeah, there's much to reflect on in, <laughs> in, in how, um, I mean, how representation matters, I guess. We cannot imagine being what we do not know exists. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. I, I, I love, and I, I love the serendipitous, serendipitousness, if that's not a word it is now, um, of, it feels like there was a lot of chance and a lot of women saying yeah. to you, yeah, we're doing this now, either because there's an opportunity or because the taxi's outside or because I don't want to take this class by myself. And so it wasn't really premeditated, but you just went no. along and here we are. I really believe in the unlikely, which is why I just don't believe in planning either, which, I, you know, but I really think that we must prepare for the unlikely more than anything else. Prepare for um, unlikely. I'm writing that down. Um, yeah, I think uh, that uh, what you were saying about representation, I think, again, two magical moments of my life, for instance, were um, when I was studying geography, there was a mention of my town, Kohat, in that, because it was a geography book, and we have a cement factory, and that's the first time I had read the name of my town in a book, and it was bizarre you know, that, oh, people know we exist sort of thing, yeah. or that it can be in English and it's written. And so there must be someone out there who is aware that this, that this all is, is real. Um, and the other moment, which is so unrelated, uh, going back to cricket, which is the conversation we were having before the podcast, was actually, um, you know, the, uh, the Afghanistan team is a new cricket team. Yes. new. And it's really interesting because most of Pakistan speaks Urdu, at least in the public sphere or English. Mm -hmm. um, so the first time I heard Pashto being spoken on the cricket stadium is when the Afghan team was shouting at each other <laughs> in Pashto. <laughs> and I almost jumped in my seat because I was like, oh, you know, and so there is, you know, there is this tension with the with the that Pashtuns have with the state in that way or this, you know, it's, it's really interesting uh, to me how these identities are so um porous in some yeah way. no absolutely and and we'll talk a little bit more about language um a little bit later um yeah. but this is already completely fascinating um tell us about stegner and how you ended up with this fellowship and what it is and what it is doing for you the stegner is i think the most magical experience <laughs> 
any writer can have. I know that's such a, I'm not, I'm not a walking advertisement for the program. No, I really think that it is a gift of time. Uh, it is two years to just write and to be in the company. I mean, honestly, I mean, and this is, I mean this very sincerely to be in that room with 10 other people uh, is to literally feel like the, you're witnessing the future of American letters being made in front of your eyes. Wow. Because they're the most brilliant people I have met um, in my life. And um, and they're obsessed with the precise, ridiculous thing that I am obsessed with. And so it just feels, um, it feels incredible. Um, I, I, you know, when I got done with my MFA, I was like, oh, I have to go back to Pakistan because my visa is ending. And so I made an effort to apply to things. And this was one of those unlikely things that I applied to and didn't even tell people that I did it because it's so embarrassing to even admit that you've applied to this thing because, mm -hmm. oh, where do, who do you think you are, sort of. Um, but I did and got it. And that was, you know, it was just, it was, again, it, it was a historical moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but it's you... probably a historical moment for Stanford too. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, but you know, I think when the first month when we were all there, um, all of us had to kind of like just pinch ourselves that this was happening. But I think the unique thing that this program does is that it puts people on both sides of emerging together. So people who have just emerged, who have just published their first books with people who are working on their first book. And what that, what the informal side of it is just incredible too, because uh, people who've just published will tell you, here are the people we talked to. Here's what I didn't know. This is what a book deal is. This is what a preempt is. This is what an auction is. This is what how you go about book covers. Here's Here's where you stand your ground. Don't say yes to everything. And you don't get that kind of, you don't, you learn nothing about publishing in an MFA. You don't learning, learn anything about publishing in any of these programs formally. And it's like a shop talk that you just don't have access to. And I, this is completely bizarre. So programs that are creating writers do no. not teach anything about the business side of, no. of writing. No, not at all. I mean, is that is that? Do you think that's a blind spot, or it's just they just don't want to go there? I think it's still a relatively new thing to institute to put uh, writing sanctuaries within universities, and there's been so much talk about MFAs. There is it like homogenizing uh, literature, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it comes with its pitfalls. But I think the idea is that here is where we are protected from all of this because again like most people who are writers they don't want to they also don't want to think about publishing you I know think. we do this not because because we don't want to be practical <laughs> you know what i mean like we do this be precisely because it's the least practical thing to do with I your think. life um and so i think it's very confronting mm -hmm. uh to be like oh i just i have to like be a person and i have to know i have the thing that i've been trying not to do my whole life which is be this business whatever whatever you know but then I had someone tell me very seriously like, having a book is like having your own business you have to advocate for it you have to uh, sell it to people you have to you know uh, publicize it etc etc and so I think that's a, that's something that still feels very unnatural it's it's so interesting because that's a great statement having a book is like having your own business because I'm thinking 
Okay, that feels very capitalist. But at the same time, if you don't think of it that way, then who are the people who get published? People that have connections. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that, that again means that that certain demographic for whom the system was created mm -hmm. uh, and who know how to work it are mm -hmm. able to get the chance. And I'm sure that happened anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but learning to be proactive kind of levels the playing field, I guess, in that and everybody has that skill of being able to um, make these connections and sell themselves, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's a real confrontation with your ideals in that when if you arrive at that juncture. For sure. So okay, you're getting so you're 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 in a cohort with people at Stegner who have published, and so you're getting a lot of practical advice, which sounds uh, very helpful. But presumably, you're writing together as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's that like? And 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 who are these people? Are they all uh, women? Are they all from a non United States? Are they where they tell us more? So I think that's also what's really incredible. That for example, four of the people in my cohort are women. Four out of five. Um, and uh, you know, I there's an international writer, Jemima Way, who's wonderful. She's from Singapore. Um, you know, and in the incoming cohort, there's actually another pa Pakistani writer, Hassan Mirza, who's coming in and it's just it's wonderful because we've both never been in a workshop in the US where we've had another Pakistani and he's in fact one of my long-term best friends no. um, you know I was like apply to this program it's the best and he did and he got it um wow. so it just feels again that a feeling of serendipity is just it's rife with that um so it yeah it's just you know the teachers you know it's just it's a real I feel like we're all getting exposed to very different um, uh, things. Amazing, amazing. Um, we, I think in the podcast now, we have a sense of who you are and how you got to where you are now. Um, can we delve a little bit into your writing and what you write about and just the process? Sure, it's, <clears throat> I made notes, but I know I'm, it's not gonna be helpful. Um, I, you know, I, I thought hard about it. I think at the heart of it is I'm questioning. It's about women, almost always. But I think it's about the relationship between women and power, mm -hmm. right? Um, how do women get power, right? And um, in, in, the, in the everyday, for instance, or social commentary around the intersection of gender, and class, because it's really interesting because um, class is such a big thing in Pakistan. And mm -hmm. I feel like in the US, of course, people don't talk about it much. Um, but, um, you know, I, I'm i trying to figure out uh, with my writing, how do these, these different forces are at play? For example, you go to, take the example of the university in Lahore, right? You have people coming there from all over the country. Uh, men and women are studying as grown-ups alongside each other and there's all this tension around gender and there's all this um, rural and urban divide um, so how does power play in uh, uh, play out between people like that right so someone might be from a rich family but rural right so for example his English is not very good mm -hmm. but then someone else who is poor you know, lives on the outskirts of the urban. So they have access to the urban, but they are much poorer. And so 
there are all these combinations which you cannot categorize easily. And I think, yeah, that's, and, I, and there's some version of this everywhere, um, you know, and then you also bring in the army in Pakistan, and then you have these, all these kids from army families whose fathers are generals, you know, uh, and it's just, you know, so all of this, um, and then also I think uh, the cost of being a thinking woman, you know, uh, because if you derive your power from intellect, right, um, and, you know, you're like, I've read all this, and there's all this studying we have done, but then in order to continue living and surviving, you have to keep subjecting yourself to oppressive systems, like marriage, or um, just like making your mother happy by doing something, you know, and so you are your own case study, honestly. And um, and so, and, and you know, and the, the, the cost of living by ideals is total ostracization. For example, if I were, and the, and the um, comparable thing you can say in this discussion is if I were a writer and I refused to publish with a publishing house. Right. Right? So I'm like, I will not be beholden to capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. So the cost is, failure right right and so how can you how can women have power it's all it's like you will fail if you you will either fail by your ideals or you will fail by the measure of society um and so i guess the question i'm asking is how to be a contemporary pakistani woman how Right, where you because we've grown up with mothers who've had traditional success, for instance, some of them they've had a husband, they've had male children, they've you know, they eventually made their own houses if you were so lucky. That was the height of success for them. Male children, house of your own, husband who loves you and makes money. This is the height of success. But then if you grow up around those people, you realize that they're deeply unhappy and what they're what they're complaining about is, oh, nobody ever let me drive. Nobody ever let me study. I'm very bored. I live in a village. I want to wear nice clothes. I want to be allowed to uh, be. I want to have my own life or whatever. I want independence. You will hear, they will not articulate it as such, but there will be a tirade of resentment. Your father didn't let me do this. Your father, his mother didn't let me do this. I had to live with these people. I didn't want to live with these people. And so you grow up thinking my life will be the opposite of this, right? And you grow up in, in, uh, in conversation with other little girls around you who are like, yes, we will not be like our mothers and we will study and we will be independent. And you see all these women work hard, et cetera, et cetera. Like I said, these five girls with me who studied and left the, the their town with me and everything. But then what happens is that a shift happens around age 23 to 25 or 23 to 30, which is people, they, they, they get education, but that education then becomes something to, it becomes like beauty, something that will sell you to the patriarchy, mm -hmm. right? So you're like, I am more marriageable. Mm -hmm. I am more elite. I am, I am a more eligible candidate for marriage. Yeah. Right. So you see all these people with ambitions, and you know they they worked so hard in college. They were heads of societies. They did all these things, 
and all of it all it translates into is marriage yeah right and i'm not saying that's true for everyone there are exceptions who will do both uh and they'll work and everything but they're not going to sacrifice marriage is what i'm saying if they can have an okay job wherever they are and be married that's great but nobody will sacrifice it right because the cost is too high yeah. and so you see that the ethos of your peers will change where they now measure success by who has married who yeah. and how many children and what is the house like and you're like but you did all of that to come to the same place where your mother was yeah I don't know how to phrase this, but I guess I'm just going to ask it straight up. Are you considered a failure? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> you have time I, to find I'll tell right you now. why, because I'm 27 right now. I'm, you know, in three years, I will be unmarriageable. <laughs> so that, so I really want to write out of this anxiety right now, because I feel like I have two parts ahead of me, right? I have... You know, and so which one do I choose? And and that's kind of the problem my characters have, which is, you know, um, something is not noble merely because it is suffering. So I cannot say, oh, be independent and be ostracized and live the life of ideals. Because actually, when you come to the US, you realize there's an epidemic of loneliness here, right? And that if you don't make a plan, for instance, if I just sit here and I don't make a plan, I will see no one. Mm. There is no fabric of life. There is no one coming to your door and being like, let's go. There is no wedding that you have to be at, you know? Right. You, there is no fabric of life, right? There is no community in that sense. You have to seek community and they're called cults or something or universities or uh, a Google campus. That is how you get a community. Um, and so you cannot rest, I cannot, allow myself to rest easily in either of these binaries, right? There's a middle path, um, but what is it? And what do we pick and what do we choose, right? What what do we pick from the uh, Pakistan, right? Or the traditional way? And what do we, and that's the question that we have at large too, because again, what I want to capture in my writing is this contemporary moment in which there is this uh, burst of uh, Instagram psychology, which is like boundaries and therapy and tell your parents no and be selfish and I follow all these accounts. I just, yes. yes. <laughs> you know, but I think it's also something to be, to take with a grain of salt, right? Because again, this is the post Freud sort of, you know, obsession with human psychology. Sometimes I am uh, in a group of people and all I hear is psychological analysis of each other they're like oh my friend you know her childhood was like this this which is why she, her now she is like this this and i'm like there is something we are all we all think we're being very subversive but we're all following mainstream thought right so you have nothing is a given and i think that's what happens like for instance when i was growing up in kohat and i was reading these jane austen books and I realized that oh, 200 years ago, men were, men were allowed to dance with women in this romantic way, or you could go on dates or something like that. This was possible 200 years ago. 200 years later, I still cannot imagine what they had in the times of Jane Austen, right? What you realize is that you can take nothing as a given. Religion is not a given. What your parents tell you is normal, is not a given. 
And so when you come with that attitude to the US, you cannot take anything as a given, right? Which I also think is the job of the writer or the comedian, which is you cannot take anything as a given. You have to question everything. And so it's a torturous life. I do not recommend it because <laughs> you will allow yourself no consolation. Right. You and cannot... I was thinking about the, the, the story of, of, say you have a heroine who, you know, goes against the odds and then, you know, if, if, if say it's a book, if the book is a happy ending, people are going to be like, that's completely unrealistic. You know, that doesn't exist. And if it has an unhappy ending, say, you know, an unhappy marriage or a suicide, then it's going to be like, well, this is so anti-feminist. You know, we can never, there's no power anywhere. So I don't even know how you would start that. Yeah, I, I honestly, I think the only thing that can get you out of all of this is luck, right? there is a certain configuration of luck that can allow you to live in both worlds but you cannot but can you rely on that i don't think it's impossible right but the odds are slim and there are many of us um and so because there's just you know there's just uh, there's just a lot so anyway so to capture the contemporary moment where the world is globalized uh, people everywhere have access to all this information. For example, my village, which is Hangu, when I was growing up, so Kohart is still somewhere um, where there is, a, there is a school with uh, a British system. There's one, but it exists, right? There is a hospital, right? In Hangu, for example, all these girls, the cable TV reached them and internet reached them, right? So they were aware of their deprivation without being able to do anything about it, right? And so, you know, usually people would ask me when I went to Lahore, they were like, oh, and we would go on a trip through the mountains. They would be like, and the girls would see these women covered up. And then the guy friends would go like, oh, but they're used to this way of life, right? They don't know any better, they're used to it. And I'm like, they're not used to it because they're watching TV. They're watching movies. They have, they know they know what they don't have you know and so this was where i tell my friends too i'm like make no mistake i was aware of what i did not have i will and i did not get used to it you know um so anyway i also it also feels really problematic to talk about this in this way because i feel like i'm reinforcing a certain kind of stereotype or reinforcing um a certain kind of image uh, and it's not this way in every space in the country for example Lahore is very liberal you'll see women smoking in cafes there you know etc etc it's but it's the definitely the 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 cohort is like this and you know stereotype or not it's it's just true right. um, um to to wrap up I want to and, and and thank you so much for being so open and honest and there's um so much more to talk about which you and I will do off uh, off the podcast uh, because we can't have a 17 hour podcast as <laughs> uh, much as I would like that um, but I do want to just land on this question of language because clearly we're having this conversation in English um, and um, you spoke earlier about the excitement about hearing Pashto on the cricket ground uh, which I love um, so what language did you grow up speaking and how does English come into it? And 
do you write in English? Do you write in other languages? Have you considered writing in other languages? Talk, talk a little bit about your relationship to language. I grew up speaking Pashto at home with all of my whole family. And when I went to school, we weren't allowed to speak in Pashto because it's a regional language. Uh, so in school, we learned Urdu and English. Urdu is the national language. Um, it's, um, yeah, I write in English because it's the language I read in, and it's the language I studied in. Mm -hmm. um, math, science, everything was in English. Um, and um, and it's the, it's the language of my mind. Um, Urdu is something I have a, a contentious relationship with because um, uh, it's the language of the uh, cultural elite in Pakistan and it's the language of Karachi, say, right? Um, and uh, everyone else in Pakistan aspires to their sort of cultural eliteness. And yeah. um, even now when I meet people uh, from back home to be subversive, they're like, oh, English, English is a colonial language. Let's talk about Urdu. Like, I understand this deep Urdu. Listen to this Urdu poetry that I'm, and I'm like, it's the same to me. Yeah. Both were enforced, yeah. right? So just, so English, uh, the Urdu is synonymous to the partition. <laughs> I'm like, I don't care about it. And it's irrelevant to me. However, I know it perfectly. <laughs> Not perfectly, but I know it well enough. I can speak in it and read in it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I write in English, uh, but also I write in a mixed, sometimes I'll have, you know, a mixture of these languages when ca characters are speaking because it depicts a reality. In the future, I do want to write in Pashto, uh, but I f first want to get, you know, get the basics down and then that is what it will require much more time and thought and all of that. But I want to write in Pashto uh, because we don't have Pashto literature. Contemporary Pashto literature is almost, it's very limited and it's definitely not bring women into it and then bring all these ideas. And so I really feel like it's my job, you know, like it's, my, it's I have to do it. If I don't do it, I don't know who will do it. And again, all of this is very self-aggrandizing. Um, so please forgive me, but it feels like that personally, that I have to be one of the people to do it. Uh, it's my duty. Um, but yeah. Well, I can't, I can't wait for that. Okay, so we have, even though we are uh, not planning and we believe in serendipity and the um, preparing for the unlikely, um, we want you to be a very successful writer in English, <laughs> that you have some uh, capital yes. to make demands and then you can move into Pashto and uh, create a, 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 an enormous uh, amount of role modeling and <laughs> change there. So this all sounds incredible. Um, we're so lucky to have you at Stanford. I'm, I'm so grateful to the Stegner Fellowship that they saw your a value and invited you to join us and I'm so glad that your um, your friend is coming as clearly uh, it, it's it's a fellowship that really understands um, potential and is willing to support it and I love that um, thank you thank you for making time to talk to me today thank you so much it was such an honor to be here and a privilege to talk to you tell us where we can find you when people if people want to read your writing which I'm sure they do where do they find you Rabia uh, they can find me in Meridian, the Seventh Wave, Litro, and Vigleet. Okay, we'll put this in the show notes. And um, yeah, thank you again. Thank you so much. As always, I want to thank Soham Shiva for creating the intro and outro to the podcast, and Simrad Mataru for post production. Turn it.
Thank you for listening to the SASPod, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.